and welcome to the Post Party Project. My name is Amy Heinrich and I am your host. Join me as we chat all things postpartum, celebrating the highs and supporting you through the lows. Everything pregnancy and birth is just such an exciting time, but often chats about postpartum experiences get missed or overlooked because everything's about the baby, which we are also totally here for. But I'm here to hear you and hold you, figuratively speaking, and to listen to your experience. Think of this podcast as your safe space to share, vent, cry, laugh, and know that you're not alone. Now, let's get into it. Welcome back to the Post Party Project. In today's episode, I chat with my very good friend, Kate. So Kate and I actually met when we were 17, 18 years old, straight out of high school. Um, We both were doing a diploma in makeup artistry. So it was really fun. It was about about a six-month course that we did, and we would attend like two or three days a week um, from memory. (laughs) And yeah, just thinking back to those days where you're 18 and you have no major care in the world. Um, yeah, it was just such a fun time. And I think there's something so special about knowing someone for so long and then watching them go through all those stages in their life. So watching Kate become a mother and then hearing today, um, her story, how everything went for her postpartum was really special. Kate's very open and honest about what she went through. Um, so I hope you guys get a lot out of this episode. I personally loved hearing it. Um, it's so nice hearing, I don't know, I guess having someone that is relatable and that has kind of, I don't know, I think as a mother, it's really important that we talk about all these topics and just normalize them as well. So Kate works as a counselor. Um, It's really interesting to hear her point of view with how everything unfolded for her uh, postpartum with her mental health, seeing it as seeing it through the lens of a counselor and then for her to also experience what she experienced. So she talks about the birth of her son. Um, He came into the world quite quickly and Kate was unable to have an epidural. She speaks about the shock she felt with having a quick birth um, and also the pressure of breastfeeding and sleep routines that I think a lot of us feel as new mothers. Um, Kate's really open with how she felt and yeah I really enjoyed today's episode so I hope you guys do too. Um, If you have a spare moment I'd absolutely love it if you could leave me a review on Apple iTunes Um, and if you enjoyed this episode make sure you share it with a friend. and if you are liking the post party project, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe as well. That way, every time I release a new episode, you'll get a little update in your podcast app. Um, also, my other business, Bev's Buzz Break, we make lower caffeine coffee for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding or want to consume lots of coffee with less caffeine, less guilt. We have a sale on our Nespresso compatible pods at the moment. Um, The 20% off discount will be automatically applied at the checkout. um, So make sure you jump over there if you're in the market for some delicious coffee. It is uh, bevsbuzzbreak.com.au. Yeah, let's get into today's chat. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Well, today I'm joined by my very good old friend, Kate. Well, no, not old. <laughs> you know what I mean. One long year. Time, long, time, <laughs> long time friend, Kate. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you. So yeah, I can't wait for everyone to hear your story. And I'm sure I haven't even heard it in this amount of depth that we're going to go into today. Yeah, maybe not. I think the first time we had a big chat about it was when Hendrix was 
I think you came to the park to tell me you were pregnant and Hendrix would have been, how old was Hendrix? He was still a fat little toddler. <laughs> yeah. And I remember telling you things and then you told me you were pregnant and I was like, oh, God, I think I'm just <laughs> scared. <laughs> no, it's good. It's oh. always good. Um, so, yeah, let's hear a little bit about yourself and who's in your family. Well, uh, so I have my husband, Jason, and we've got little Hendrix. So Hendrix was three on the 4th of July. Um, he's our only child and, um, yeah, not too sure if he'll have a sibling or not at this point, but we shall see in the future. Um, and so I work as a counsellor. Um, at the moment, I'm a service manager for drug and alcohol industries, so um, yeah, specialising in drug and alcohol, substance abuse essentially and all the things that go with it, so like trauma, grief, um, legal proceedings, uh, DCP involvement, all of that joyous stuff. So I do that four days a week um, and then I'm with Hendrix the rest of the time. So, yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell at the moment. <laughs> awesome. So how <laughs> when, did, <laughs> when did you guys plan to have Hendrix? Was he planned or was he a surprise? Well, so originally when Jason and I first started dating, um, actually even before we started dating, I'd kind of started investigating whether or not I had PCOS um, because I had exceptionally irregular periods. Like I think the one that prompted me to go to the doctor was I didn't get my period for 75 days and that was off the pill. That was no contraception involved. Um, and I wasn't in a relationship at that time either. So I was just like, there's no pregnancy scare. There's no reason for this to not be arriving on time um and my cycles were generally like 45 to 50 days long but yeah the 75 day I was the one that scared me the most so when we got together and we got engaged we used to talk about it um and I was going through a private GP to kind of you know do bloods and testing and things like that so when we got married we pretty much decided that we would try straight away um, because my GP had told me that if it was, if I think it was about a year, if we were trying for a year and we had no luck, then we would probably start proceedings of medication or potentially investigating IVF. Uh, I fell pregnant with Hendrix in the October and we were married in the April. So what's that? It's like six months? Yeah. I think so. Quick maths, yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So he was planned, but it wasn't like we were... I wasn't tracking cycles or anything. I guess we were just not using protection and hoping for the best. So he was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Because I know you've always said that Jason's just always wanted to be a dad as well. Yes. Yeah, so he wants six children and I'm getting to the <laughs> point where I'm telling him he might need to go and um have another couple of wives or something because I don't know if I could do six. <laughs> a lot. Oh, yeah, no thanks. No, thank you. Kudos to the people that can handle that. I can't. <laughs> yeah. um, how did you feel through your pregnancy? Did you have any complications? So I think I got it really lucky until the end. So for me, I never got any nausea or vomiting. I think at 12 weeks we'd gone to Melbourne at Christmas to tell my mum and I think there was one day where I was a bit nauseous, but I also was just craving peaches and nectarines, which was really weird. So that was probably the word, like I laid on the couch and just fantasized about food, but wanted to throw up at the same time. That happened once. I never actually was sick. Um, it wasn't until 36 weeks where we had a significant placental bleed. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I just felt really hot and sweaty 
And then I went to turn on the light and noticed that I had blood on my hands and like kind of on my arm where I'd obviously been like resting. And then when I moved the sheet, there was a lot of blood Mm. and I thought he had died. Like it was terrifying. So we drove to the hospital because we rang, we rang my midwife and she said, if you're not in significant pain, you're not cramping, just get in the car because we live 15 minutes from the hospital. So an ambulance would have been probably the same amount of time. It was a very somber drive. We didn't cry, but we didn't really talk because we were, I think, too afraid to acknowledge what we thought was going on. Um, got into the doctor, uh, got into the hospital, and it turned out, I, so I stayed overnight and they did a million ultrasounds and lovely internals and all of that sort of stuff, and it turned out it was just a part of the placenta had started to pull away. So I was told in that moment that he was going to come before 39 weeks, whether I liked it or not. If we got to 39 weeks, he, I was going to have to have, um, a cesarean and um, I'd originally planned to have a water birth but this event had taken that completely off the cards um, because they had to put one of those is it the Doppler the band with the little ultrasound thing they had to have that on me at every point of my birth um, to make sure that he was okay um, so that obviously meant I couldn't be submerged in water which was I was disappointed but now looking back I'm not sure if that is something I want to do I'm not really I don't know I'm not really sure at this point in time, if I'd want to go down that path again. Um, And then I was going to the hospital every two days up until the moment he decided to spontaneously arrive in the world um, because they wanted to Doppler him, check his heart rate. And then I think it was every third appointment I was having ultrasounds to check on him, check on his growth. Um, And he was fine. But at 38 weeks and one day, my waters broke at home at about 2 a.m. And... What happened then? I just remember standing at the edge of the bed looking at my husband and he was like, we used to be friends. I was like, I know, how is this happening? Like we were both <laughs> so like, what is going on? And I was like, having your baby. Like it was so weird. And um, and that was, yeah, 2 a.m. So we went into the hospital. We were sent home at about 5 and I was starting to have some kind of cramps, but I had been having Braxton Hicks's, so they weren't too different. Um, and I remember, this is so funny, I was I laid on the bed, Got myself comfortable. I had chocolate and my husband had the underbelly season one in the background. So I just really remember that song, you know, the oh, yeah. there like over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um and I remember looking at him at one point when the contractions were eight minutes apart. So I was using an app to track them and I was like, Oh my god, I've got this. Like, this is so easy. Idiot. Like, absolutely <laughs> I should go back in time and, and slap past Kate, but um <laughs> Yeah, probably, then it got not to needed at the time. <laughs> no, probably not. Just force some more chocolate down my throat, maybe. Um, and then yeah, it got to like nine, nine thirty, and I got myself in the shower with the hot water because we oh we had done um is it hypnobirthing? Mm-hmm. So I knew that like hot water on the back was supposed to alleviate cramps, and you know I really wanted to do as much as I could at home. And I was in the shower, and I remember just being like Satan and saying to Jason like why are they not stopping? Like I just wasn't getting a break um, and they were so close together and they were becoming so intense. We rang my midwife and she said, yeah, yeah, come in, come in. We got in at about 11. Yeah, by the time we packed our stuff up, I tried to straighten my hair before we went in because I had this weird vision that I needed to look semi-normal for photos because some of my girlfriends have the most glamorous 
like, oh, this is my baby first photo. <laughs> Yeah. Mine is horrendous. I don't even know if it should see daylight. Like it's so bad. I don't so even. Like, I've seen it. Hey? I don't even know if I've seen it. Like I feel like now that you said it, we have to see it. Oh, it's so bad. You can just see sheer exhaustion on my face. Like I'm just so so tired and just like what the fuck just happened. So how did the hair straightening oh. go? Did you manage to get through the? I did the like front wispy bits of my my fringe essentially because I was like doing it between contractions every three and a half minutes and Jason was like hurry up please just let me do this and then buckling over and crying um I remember distinctly when we drove into the hospital it was pouring with rain and Jason had to quickly drop me at the front of um Armadale ED and drive to get a park and in the time that he got a park and ran up I'd had two contractions and there was this poor man and wife staring at me and I'm in the middle of one and I'm like fully buckled over and grabbing my knees and just like moaning and breathing through it and the lady's like are you okay and I just looked at her and I was like I'm in labor <laughs> <laughs> Very dramatic um oh so bad those poor people um so I got in and I was like six centimeters I think or six and a half centimeters dilated and then he was born by 118 but I begged for pain relief. I begged for everything. I couldn't get anything. The gas just made me feel really high. Like it made me feel really disorientated and, but it didn't take away the pain. Um, I found it to be one of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, and I've broken bones. So, you know, that, oh, yeah, if anyone's had a natural birth, they probably, oh, I hope somebody else knows what I'm talking about I'm sure a million people know what I'm talking about if not billions um I found that really traumatic and really scary that loss of control and that intense level of pain and I remember being like I can't do this and my midwife was like you can and you actually don't have a choice at this point and that was quite terrifying I know she was trying to be supportive but it just felt so out of control it's the first time I've been out of control of my own body I think was, like almost um, being present but not present. Was there a reason that you couldn't get the pain relief? Like did you have that in your birth plan or was there just not available at the time? Um, I didn't have it in my – I didn't have it ruled out in my birth plan. That was one thing that I had been recommended was don't rule anything out because then you can have choices. Um, from what I remember being told was that it was happening quite quickly and the right – of my contractions meant that I wouldn't have been able to be stable for an epidural. I don't know why I couldn't get like the the, the needle or the morphine or whatever it is that, again, I'm not a midwife, so um, I don't really remember what they were calling it at the time. But, yeah, I didn't get anything like that. And um, I did tear a little bit. I didn't have an episiotomy. I had a first-degree tear, which I ended up actually, that's one of the complications I think I've blocked out of my mind. Six months later, I had to go back and get it recut and restitched mm. because it was causing major discomfort and it was only a minor tear, so I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but, yeah, it was just quite a lot. And then my anxiety kicked in around being like, holy crap, we have a baby and being quite traumatised from the birth that I didn't sleep for 36 hours. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a good start. 
Mm. It really wasn't. Yeah. Do you feel like, because um, you did the hypnobirthing course, was there, did that like prepare you in any way or did you feel like because it came on so fast you were expecting a different birth or? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I haven't really unpacked that before. I felt more prepared, like I felt like I had an idea of what was going on and I remember distinctly feeling the change of pushing from just being contractions like around my stomach and around my back to that feeling of bearing down, which in hypnobirthing I talk about a lot. Um, so he actually got stuck on my cervix at one point and I remember I was on naturally I was kind of like on all fours on the bed that just seemed to feel like the most comfortable position and they had the bed up in like a bit of an L shape and I was really pushing my head into the pillows and bearing down through cramps and through contractions um they tried to do an internal to move him off my cervix and I'm pretty sure I climbed the wall like a gecko because it was just so painful and I told the midwife to go away. I was proud. I never swore, but I, I was very directive about leaving me alone. Poor <laughs> <laughs> midwife. She was so nice. Um, and then she was like, okay, let's get up. And she just walked me to the toilet and got me to sit on the toilet. And apparently something about that position is quite naturally relaxing for us. So um, then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I can feel something different. And then they walked me back to the bed and I actually was kind of leaning on the bed again, bent over. And it wasn't until he was about to be born that they got me onto my back and I pushed. But her and I debriefed a few days later and she was like, I wish I could have kept you on all fours because I feel like you wouldn't have torn in that position. Mm -hmm. And because I was naturally kind of going to that position anyway. So she was like, you know, that's something that she wishes that she could have done differently when we debriefed. I was like, okay, like I, I don't really, you see it in TV and stuff all the time, but apparently it's just, it's not the best position. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that Did was you, the um, that was the start. Yeah. Did you feel supported when you were in labour? I did. Like I did. I remember feeling supported. I had a lot of trust for my midwife. Um, we didn't have a lot of doctors present. It was just my midwife and the um managing, like the floor manager at the time, that was in there. The um, doctor did come in and did ask to put a cannula in my hand because of the amount of blood I'd lost at 36 weeks just in case, say, I was to go into rapid blood loss again, they could, I guess, support me quite quickly and I told him to go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, yeah, so my midwife was just really like, you can say no, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And I said, yes, I want to say no. I really mm. want to say no to this. So he had it set up on, a, I guess, a trolley close enough that if they had to do something they could do it quite quickly but they never needed to do that I didn't mm. lose significant amounts of blood they did a bit of an investigation of the placenta afterwards and my husband got involved in that which he <laughs> thinks is so great but yeah you, you could kind of see the pot the spot that had died oh wow and it just so looked like like a, it looked like a a graze almost mm. on the placenta was there, like, thinking back to your birth, is there anything that you would do differently if you were to have another? Yeah, I would like to have a natural birth again if I had to, but I'm 100% going to ask for an epidural because yeah. I think the trauma of the pain and the exhaustion and the stress that followed impacted my postnatal anxiety and it impacted my bonding with Hendrix in the very beginning. Yeah. So how so, did you yeah. um how did you then feel immediately post birth? 
uh, I was terrified. Like I'd never even changed a nappy before Hendrix was born and I remember having to do that by myself in the hospital and just because he was, you know, cold so he was like crying Mm -hmm. and I just remember being so nervous and panicked. So I ended up calling the midwife just to be like, can you just watch me and make sure I'm doing the right thing because I have no guidance. Like I've not had to do this before. Um, and I didn't sleep, like I said, for 36 hours. So then I wanted to leave the hospital as soon as I could because I hadn't had a major tear and because my birth was natural. They did all the clearances for Hendrix and myself the next day and I was home by midday. I think I got to have my first home shower by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I fully had an auditory hallucination. Mm. Um, I got into the shower. I'd said to my husband, I just really need five minutes, so please just let me have peace for five minutes and um got in the shower and I had a bit of a cry and then I could just hear Hendrix screaming and I was just thinking to myself far out like I just asked for five minutes you know could you not have could you not just be the dad and just keep him company for five minutes so I got out of the shower really angry to a peacefully silent house and he's like no he's asleep so that was that was obviously yeah a uh, secondary symptom to absolute sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. and what was going on. It's actually crazy. One of the points that you brought up then, and I remember for myself, I think like culturally how they say you need a village or whatever, but Mm. in our society you give birth and they just leave you and the baby in the hospital room by yourself for however long. Like they come in and check on you obviously, but I feel like in different cultures you would never just be alone with yourself and your baby. Even in public hospitals your partner can't stay and it's like really how is that just not a basic human right to have another person with you 24-7? Yeah, yeah, and that's... Yeah, he had to, Jace had to leave at 8 p.m. and he was back earlier than he was supposed to, but I don't know how he did it. He's just the type of person that he is. He probably told his life story to a couple of the nurses at the station before he came in and he probably charmed his way through, but he was there at about 6, 6.30 with coffees, um, you know, beaming. But he said that on his drive into the hospital, he rang his mom and he rang my mom and he was just really emotional. I was yeah. like, oh, that's nice. I hadn't slept. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you got to have a chat and a cry. Yeah. Uh, How did you feel being at home straight away? Would you, would you rather be at home than, than at the hospital? Um, in the setting that I was in, being in public without having someone with me at night time, yeah, I wanted to be at home. I wanted to be in my own bed. I wanted to have my partner next to me. Um, I wanted to yeah, get my own creature comforts. Maybe if we went privately, um, that would probably be one of the only reasons I would go private, to be honest, because I got great great care from the public system and, you know, um, can't fault it at all. But it would be, yeah, having that overnight stuff. So then I could stay a little bit longer and I think it might have been different for, you know, some of the things that went forward like Hendrix's latching and stuff that we had difficulties with and just like my reassurance in my own abilities, I think. Mm. Yeah. How did, um, you mentioned um, latching. How did you decide to feed Hendrix and how did it go? Yeah, so that's a fun story. That was probably my most traumatic. Um, Hendrix had a lot of difficulty latching um, and what I reflected on and worked on with having conversations with, I'm very lucky I've got access to counsellors and clean sites at my workplace because that's who I manage, having conversations um 
I, my postnatal anxiety was really triggered by my perceived failures um, and one of those was his feeding. So I think the message that we all get from, I just think unconsciously as women, is that we have breasts, therefore we can breastfeed. Mm. You know, like I don't think, you know, the hospital was very pro-boob as well and I understand the benefits. Um, but I chose to breastfeed and I did have a good milk supply, so that wasn't the issue, but Hendrix struggled to latch. And I persisted and persisted and persisted until it worked. It did not work naturally until 12 weeks. Mm. So it was the longest 12 weeks. We, in the beginning, had, went to so many um, consultants. Uh, we, for a while there, we had to do um, the, what do you call it? Talk about it so many times and now I've forgotten in the moment I need to know. These, um, the feeding line. So what I would do is I would express. Uh, we would draw up. Um, my breast milk into a um, syringe it would be attached to a feeding line I had acrylic nails on that I hadn't taken off before his birth so the um, consultant said that I couldn't do this part but we would attach it to Jason's finger Jason would have to insert it into Hendrix's mouth to find his soft palate as he would start to suck appropriately he would say yep go and I would release a bit of milk we were trying mm. to teach him to actually suckle back mm. as far as the soft palate rather than doing the shallow which was hurting me, affecting him. He wasn't getting food. So then once he mastered that, we did the same thing, but the feeding line had to go under a nipple shield on me. Mm -hmm. And as I felt him latch properly, we'd, I'd have to say to Jason, yeah, go. So this meant for every single feed, it was a two-man project with equipment that had to be sterilized every time. Like it was, it was a lot. So we were both really exhausted through all of that. And Jace was working as well. So... Um, during the day, I'd have help sometimes from my mum, which meant that mum was like, oh, I haven't seen as much of you since you were a baby. So. <laughs> <laughs> You've changed. Um, yeah. So um, he never had an issue with drinking from the bottle, never. Mm. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think about, you know, being able to reassure my past self. I would have liked to have said to myself, you know, just if, if he's taking the bottle, express for as long as you can. Um, if when, when and if that kind of petered off, move to formula, like he's, you know, fed is best mm. um, rather than doing what I did to myself because I think that really contributed to my mental health negatively. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like I think, yeah, thinking about how it would have been if you just went straight to formula, you would have... Mm probably being able to enjoy him a lot more, like that anxiety wouldn't be there. Yeah. 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 And I know that, that that drive was perpetuated by, you know, my own deep, deep-seated beliefs around like being perceived as being capable and things that I should just be able to do and what it means to be a mom and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, yeah, having unpacked it as much as I have, I know that it comes from the driving factor was being afraid to fail. Mm. And so I just kept persisting and I kept persisting, but it actually caused so much other disruption in my world, Yeah, which if it hadn't have been there and if I could have accepted that in the moment, it would have been a better journey. Mm. Um, how long did you end up breastfeeding him for? Till he was one. So oh, once wow. he got it, he, he, he got it quite well. And then I had no difficulty weaning off. We naturally kind of dropped feeds and replaced them with bottles of formula. In the end, I was just doing his nighttime feeds. I think it was more of a soothing thing for him. 
Um, and then I went back to work and it kind of just naturally happened. I think being back at work and him being at daycare and maybe my milk supply was running out because of working and maybe added stress. I'm not too sure, but yeah, it naturally happened. I was really lucky. I never struggled with anything like mastitis or anything. I was quite afraid of that. Mm. Was there any reason why he was doing the shallow suckling or is that just, that can just happen to somebody? Um, so a couple of the consultants I spoke to, because I asked the same thing, like, is there something going on? Uh, he didn't have tongue tie or lip tie or anything like that. He was only little. He was uh, 2.75 kilos when he was born. So I think that's 6.1. And he was a little bit, you know, he's 38 weeks and one day. So some of the speculation was that perhaps his muscles around his, you know, like he wasn't as big a baby as some others, therefore his strength maybe wasn't. So he just wasn't doing the motion mm. like he should. Yeah, He did eventually get it though when he was, you know, 12 weeks old. Yeah. So he was never not going to get it, but it was just in that initial stages. He just was not not latching properly. Mm, yeah. Really um, struggled. Yeah. How did you find um, your support network? Did you have much of a support network? I did. I was really lucky. Like my my husband's great. He's still a great dad today. He's been a great dad from the get-go. He's very hands-on. You know, he's just, yeah, wonderful. He's always there. Uh, very supportive. Uh, my mum calls him my third breast, so that's <laughs> <It's a nice laughs> that, that's kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I had my my mum flew over from Melbourne at about two weeks, and my family surprised me with that. So I remember opening the door and just crying and hugging her. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad and his partner lived directly out the back at the time. Um, they were really supportive. Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. Oh, um, we had some challenges with family members, mostly around like fear-based cultural differences. But you know, it's it was really difficult at the time, and I think it still peters in the background a little bit. It will mm. never leave me and Jason how much it affected us. I don't know that they realize it affected us as much as it did, but it it really did. Yeah. Um. And I know, I know it came from places of love, but it was just entrenched in fear and it caused so much damage at a time where we were already sleep deprived and scared anyway. Yeah. So, you know, that would be something I'd say to people, like if you've got concerns that are maybe superficial when you've got a friend with a new baby, don't tell them that. Mm. <laughs> like if it's a genuine fear, then reach out to somebody around them that could help them. But you don't need to love that on someone because you have no idea what they're going through. Yeah. My husband's, to give context, my husband's uh, Sri Lankan and obviously um, I'm not obviously, but I'm Australian um, and he was born here. So he's obviously, he's really, he's yeah quite Australian as well. That's what he would consider himself. That's what, how he speaks about himself as well. But there is definite cultural differences with families and children. And um, yeah, we really experienced that in the beginning. Yeah. And does it feel a bit better now that he's a bit older? Um, Yes, but the damage, the emotional and psychological damage that came with it in the beginning has never left. Like it's really, for us, for Jason and I, it's really changed the way that we feel towards those people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did anything come up for you postpartum that you weren't aware of or didn't expect? Yeah, I think postnatal anxiety and how absolutely brutal it is 
I think I had elements of depression as well, but for me, it, the symptomology was definitely more anxiety driven because it was that constant need to have things structured and in routine. And as we know, newborns are not like that at all. Children are not like that at all in general. Um, and so for me, it was about his latching and it was about his naps. And I became so fixated. Like I would cancel plans if they were too close to naps or, um, yeah, I was, I was a slave to the nap essentially and that was a part of my postnatal anxiety. And then I found as well because that his night sleeping was pretty pretty atrocious, we ended up getting a sleep specialist to have a consultation with us at I think it was seven months. But his sleep was so broken at night that I would often not fall asleep because I was so anxious that I wasn't going to sleep and then it just perpetuated that horrendous cycle of I'm scared that I'm going to get woken up in half an hour and I'm going to feel groggy and then that would stop me from sleeping. And there'd be often times where he would sporadically maybe sleep for three hours and I'd kick myself because I was like, that's when I could have slept, but I wasn't to know. So, yeah, that that really did not pre- – I was not prepared for that at all. Like, how can he be as a first-time mum? You have no idea what it feels like to be yeah. responsible for a new life. Exactly, yeah. I was the same trying to think when I was pregnant, how am I going to plan this? So she sleeps the best that she possibly can. And yeah. then it's just such a shock when it's like, but I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing and it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it just, yeah. And again, it's that for me, that deep trigger essentially of um, being afraid of failure, whether it's actual, well, perceived failure. I didn't want anyone to think I wasn't doing well and I was a, I was failing, but then like, if I truly believed I was a failure, like that was probably the biggest fear. And so I just wanted to keep trying and keep trying and keep finding solutions. And I would, you know, sit up at night and I, I remember Googling night nannies and um, the snoo, which I'm like, oh, my God, I definitely want to get if I have another baby, that, that rocking bassinet looks out of this world, if anyone's <laughs> jealous. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, wouldn't it be so nice? Um yeah, I just used to Google like a ma- million things at night just to try and, and I still do that now. Like, his, yeah, it's still not fantastic sometimes. His night sleep's always been a bit of a a bit of a um issue. Mm. How how did you go mentally? I know you've touched on it a few times. Did you end mm. up reaching out for help or anything? I did to my GPs. This is the funny thing, right? So, and I find this a lot in my industry, but. As a counsellor and as somebody that works with people with mental health struggles all the time, I find it really hard to reach out for myself. Um, I did internalise emotionally quite a lot. I didn't really speak. I did speak to some of my close friends, but I still probably wouldn't class that as really getting deep not because I was afraid that they were going to judge me, but just I didn't want pity. I didn't want sadness. Like I didn't want to see it in people's faces because then it would just feed back to me what I was feeling. Um, And, you know, and then obviously I didn't want to, I didn't want to confirm that I was a failure either. So sometimes I think that I struggle with that when I don't talk, it's because I'm trying not to get the feedback I'm afraid of hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did speak to my GP and my GP did start me on escitalopram for a little while, which is an anti-anxiety me- medication. I t- 
told her from the beginning I didn't want to be married to it and I would want to look at a, re um, a reduction regime. So I did that after about six months uh, and she did want me to go to a psychologist but I never followed through with that. So I'm naughty. I don't recommend anyone doing that because, yeah, referrals to support services are vital and really important. Um, I, but I didn't follow through. If I'm being very brutally honest, I just relied on the medication and utilising some of the skills that I teach others. But it's very different when it's yourself. And it was really quite eye-opening to see how my postnatal anxiety was manifesting in me because I would never have picked beforehand that that's how I would respond. Mm. And then watching it through my counsellor lens and then my personal lens, I was like, this is wild. It was a very, very interesting time <laughs> how did the medication go did you feel that it helped uh I did I did think that it helped me just you know it brings you back down to baseline it reduced I wasn't as hypervigilant which is one of the one of my traits that I get when I'm anxious anyway but this was chronic like I was chronically um hypervigilant which was one of my reasons for taking myself to the GP I was just constantly on edge almost like mentally constantly preparing for an issue um, and trying to solve it before it even happened, which is, you know, which is anxiety essentially. Um, but, yeah, I did think it was helpful and I made sure that I weaned myself off with the GP's, um, you know, guidance so that I didn't become irritable or suffer any of the symptoms that you can have when you just stop medication really quickly like that. So, yeah, I'm glad I I'm glad I did that. I wish I'd done it earlier. Mm. Did you go in um, knowing that you wanted to get medication rather than speaking to a psych, or it? Yeah. yeah. But do you feel like that? Because I've spoken to so many women who have said they have been recommended psychological help and then they choose not to go. So I'm just thinking, like, what mm. is it do you think that makes us not go ahead with it? Um. Like I can only, uh, I can speak for myself and I can speak for what I hear at work. Again, obviously what I hear at work is not around uh, birth trauma and postnatal and post, um, postnatal depression or anxiety. Mine's around grief, loss, trauma and um, substance abuse and how we use it to cope um, often. A lot of people are reluctant to speak sometimes because they, again, Either they're a bit like me and they, if they say it, it's true and so they don't necessarily want to have to open up to somebody like that in that way um, or maybe they've talked, they've had a bad experience in the past sometimes. Um, I meet a lot of people that have had bad, bad experiences as a younger person with therapists and then it's kind of tainted their expectation going forward, which is really unfortunate. Um or they've actually had a history of therapy their whole life and they're sick of talking. Some people just get to the point where they don't want to tell their story again to a new person. Um, and if they can't access an, uh, an older therapist, like when I say older therapist, I mean someone they had prior engagement with, then they can be a bit reluctant. So I think there's lots of reasons. But personally for me, again, it was all surrounding that perception of failure. I didn't want to go and tell someone what was going on because I was really scared that it was going to be deemed that I was just not good enough. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, another thing 
for me that I have thought about is that there's so many steps to get there as well. I feel like when you have a newborn, who has time to go to like a million appointments to get referrals for yourself when you're not thinking about yourself at all? You're trying to survive and look after this baby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like getting out of the house sometimes is just a mammoth effort in itself. I, yeah, like even like the child nurse appointments, I remember going to one of those and Hendrix managed to do a massive, massive up the back shit in the car away there. And I remember just being out in the car park, changing him in the car, crying. And then when the child nurse saw me, he was like, you could have come in. Like I, there's space here for everything. And I was like, I didn't want to come into you bawling my eyes out with my child with shit up his back because you're here to assess my child. Like, you know, again, it's all about that perceived image. Like you're yeah. trying to uphold this image of like, I've got this, I've got this. When actually I was like a duck on water. My let my on the surface, I kind of, I think maybe looked like I was okay, but underneath I was frantic with paddling. Absolutely. Yeah. Just kicking it's crazy so crazy like yeah you're like I remember an an experience because I hate being late to things and Ivy being so upset in the car and crying and then I couldn't figure out how to get the pram together and it's like you just feel so stressed because you want to be on time and you want to appear like you've got it all together and you're just a perfect mum and I'd be so worried that she would start crying in the waiting room or whatever and now if I hear a crying baby or anything like that there is I have no judgment or negative thoughts to anyone I'm like do you need help like it's not yeah yeah same like and so that's unfortunately you know I know how I look at the world outwardly and I do I try to do it with a lot of compassion and empathy and I'm the same as you if I hear someone cry a baby crying or even like a toddler kicking off with a tantrum in the shops I often think oh your poor mom like do you need help because you're the one that's going to be feeling the stress right now yeah but on myself I did not have that same lens my lens for Mm -hmm. myself is so unrelentingly high mm. for standards which yeah. is shit you don't have room for anything else do you yeah do you feel like that if you were to have a second that you would change anything about your postpartum experience or the way you thought about yourself so it's funny I actually spoke with my clean psych at work this week and um, we were talking about it she's got two young children and we were just saying about similar conversation about you know what we thought we would feel and you know I told her I'd hope that with the experience of the first one that I'd be a little bit more knowing and comfortable and reassured that things were going to turn out okay um because it obviously had with Hendrix um I would hope that I'd be a bit more proactive with my mental health and if I've always said to my husband if we did do it again and if feeding was an issue I am not mucking around this time but then you know, part of me goes, there's so many hormones in place in that moment. The person that I am talking to you right now is feeling very different to what the person that's just given birth is going to feel like. And will that drive to be the biological mother to my child with my body and my hormones and everything responding to that child, will I be able to just push that aside? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Like I know I'll have that thought, but it'll be so it'll be so different. So it's all just hope and hypotheses. Like, mm. you know. Um yeah, so I don't know. I, I I that's what I hope for myself. I hope for myself that I can be a little bit more realistic and kind of myself. But then at the same time, I'm I'm gonna need 
support and reminders because if I find myself in that space feeling differently, it's going to be a challenge again. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think about as well with um, like downloading those kind of apps like the Wonder Weeks. Is that mm. it? One, yeah, Wonder Weeks yeah. app. I'm like maybe I wouldn't get that next time and I would just go with the flow. But I think when you're in the thick of it and you've got like an upset baby that's been upset for weeks, it kind of in a way is reassuring when you check the app and you're like, oh, a leap or whatever. This makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you've got, yeah, just, you've got an answer or a reason for something, right? Yeah, but then that, it causes so much anxiety as well because if they're not in a leap, you're like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel the same. I know it's it's all, yeah, I guess it's all hope and just pre-planning again. But then, yeah, I don't know. That's a really, it's a very... Good question, but it's very deep. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's hard when you're not in it. Like even now I feel Ivy being almost 18 months, I'm so removed to what it feels like to have a newborn and to have that constant sleep deprivation of waking up every one to two to three hours kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'd be fine. But it's like not until you're in that, like you said, your hormones everywhere, you're not sleeping. Like it's very hard to make logical decisions in those moments. Yeah, and I I absolutely just watch my girlfriends in awe who've gone and had their second or third while the others are young. Mm. Like I just look at Hendrix and how involved we are as parents and how much we love him and I just think, how do you do that with another one? Like yeah. how is that even possible? I know people adapt and I'm sure we would adapt, but I just, like, wow, that looks so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Good on everyone who is doing that right now. I know, I know. It's like I just think they're superhuman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's one of the things or what are the things that you have found most rewarding about being a mum? Just I, I'm so proud of Hendrix. Like I just think he's such, like this morning he um, crawled into our bed at quarter to six and laid down next to us and he was just like hugging Jason's head for a while and then rolled over to me and he was just like looking at me and then he was just lying there asleep and I was like I can't believe I made this like it's so crazy that my body made a person like just one day decided to make a pair of kidneys and then the next it was like oh alarm obviously uh, <laughs> gonna put a caveat out there that I don't know the order that things are created in so don't come at me but you know what I mean and then one day it was bones like something you know I just think it's amazing that the body can do that and then yeah just watching him grow and his little personality and his vocab has just shot up. Like we can have full conversations with him now and he's actually really funny. Like he's insane, he's funny, he's nice. He's, yeah, he's just a cool little human and I'm very proud of him and I love him. And I told him the other day that I really liked him as a person. I think he's a good person. So now he's asking everyone if they're good people. So yeah. <laughs> I feel um, like I'm so excited for the talking stage. Like it just sounds yeah, cute. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's nice. He's also fighting with us. Like this morning he was like, don't do that, mum. I was like, oh, God, okay. The other day he was yelling at me so much I started laughing. I shouldn't have. But I was like, oh, he didn't want me to change his nappy and then I told him to breathe and he said he didn't want to breathe because um, he was just getting a bit, a bit intense. And then I had a bit of a giggle and he's like, don't laugh. Like, okay, sorry. <laughs> so um, oh. If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? It would 100% be not 
to equate my worth and my capabilities to breastfeeding and whether I can do that or not and the frequency and lengths of his sleeps Mm -hmm. because I definitely did, you know, wrap my worth and my ability into those two aspects and hyper-focused on them. So kind of like what we said before, just trying to find other things to value, you know, like his temperament and the fact that he's fed and warm and clean and loved and safe and all of those things are so, so relevant and I dismiss them completely. Mm. So that would be what I would Yeah, what I'd like if I would have sat down and said to myself in that hospital room and have a sleep, woman. (laughs) Go to the doctor, get your meds and have a sleep. Yeah, yeah. Ask someone else to sit with him for five minutes or an hour or whatever it was that you needed just to be be your best self. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I wish that I reached out more. Like Jared would offer me to have naps by myself so often and I was like, "Yeah, what's the point? She is going to wake up anyway, so I'll just sleep with her. But I just wish that I just trusted him to have her for an hour or two in those early days. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, Will, is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you think that we could cover that affected Um, you postpartum? No, I think just maybe the only other thing that I think was really poignant when I was thinking about it this morning before we started chatting was I often look back at photos of Hendrix at as a newborn and, you know, under 12 months and, like, I'm really, I have conflicted feelings and I think it's okay to have conflicted feelings and though the, the, the conflicted feelings are that I love him and I look back and I'm like, oh, my baby, look how fat or look how cute or look how, like, squishy he was or he's so beautiful. But then I'm also sad because I know what I was going through at that time and I wish I could, like, transport the love that I have for those photos now. Not that I didn't love him because I would have thrown myself in front of a moving train for him, but it was still quite, it was a constant struggle. So it was that, you know, I'm sure people get what I'm saying. I'm I'm losing words to explain it. but. the love that I have for him now is just like that overwhelming, like just swallows me whole when I'm feeling it. And I have that for his baby photos. So there's like a, there's like a sadness that I didn't get to feel that then, but I feel it now. Yeah. I think that's probably quite a common thing with people posting on social media and looking perfect and stuff as well. Like I'm sure so many people feel just, yeah, hurt or upset on the inside. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for joining me today, Kate. This has been oh, such my a great absolute chat. Pleasure. <laughs> so nice. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I loved how open and honest Kate was with everything she experienced postpartum. If you would like to share your postpartum experience, I would love to hear from you. You can either email me at thepostpartyproject at gmail.com or you can send me a message on Instagram at thepostpartyproject.